there and you're very welcome to the programme. Well, coming up today, from Deliverance to Excalibur to The General to Hope and Glory, my guest this morning is one of the great film directors. John Borman, nominated five times for an Oscar, made Wicklow his home more than 50 years ago. But now as he approaches his 90th birthday, with a broken heart, he's preparing to leave his beloved home in Animo. He's also credited with being one of the founders of the Irish film industry. And we'll hear from neighbours and close friends, including Brendan Gleeson, Paul McGuinness and James Morrissey. Our text number 51551. You can email Miriam at rt.ie. You can find me on Twitter at Miriam O'Cal or on Instagram at instmiriam. Well, my guest this morning, he's a five-time Oscar-nominated film director who has lived in Ireland for 53 years. John Borman has made incredibly successful movies down the years, including Deliverance, Excalibur, Hope and Glory and The General. He's also credited with bringing a film industry to Ireland. He's now, however, calling time on the Wicklow countryside and his much-loved home in Animo, and he is broken-hearted to be leaving. John Borman, good morning to you. Good morning. Listen, I know you've said that you've lived in Ireland longer now than most Irish people, but you were, of course, born in London. Do you mind taking me back, John, and tell me when it was that you first came to Wicklow all those years ago, how you came to be living here? Well, I tell you, I came here in 1969 to do the post-production of a film of Leo the, Leo the Last. And um, I came to Mar- Ardmore because there was nothing available in, in, in London. And so I came here by accident, really, then. <laughs> Uh, it was a beautiful summer, and while we worked on the post-production of Leo the Last, we discovered the beauty of Wicklow. I felt we all fell in love with Wicklow, mountains, lakes. And um, so I've been working, living and working in uh, Hollywood, and uh, I, I didn't want to go back to England because it'd be, it'd be, it had been very negative. Going to America was, it was wonderful because things were positive. It was easy to get things done. Mm. But I didn't want to bring my kids up there. So I was in a quandary, really. But I, so I decided, well, stay here then. <laughs> and so we started looking for a house and I found this place. And uh, I, I loved it. It was a river running through it. It was beautiful. The trees are lovely. And we'll talk, John, more about the Glebe. I know your beautiful home there in Wicklow and the trees in a moment. But look, you were, of course, born in 1933. So I think you were a child of the Blitz, John. And is it true that you were much more terrified of school than you were of the war and, the, and that the bomb sites were actually the perfect playground for you as a child? <laughs> well, so I was seven when the war started, 12 when it ended. And um, I made the film Hope and Glory, which is about my childhood in the Blitz. And uh, it was, there were sc- scary moments, all right, but for the most part, it was a wonderful playground for children, the bomb sites and things. We had a, a rather wonderful time finding, we all, all had collections of shrapnel. <laughs> and 
So we were delighted when uh, a German bomb had fallen and broken into shrapnel and went out and collected uh, bits from it. So, yes, it was a, it was a playground, really, and, and school was very spasmodic. And, in fact, my film, um, Hope and Glory, ends with the boy reluctantly going back to school. And when he goes into the playground, he finds that a bomb has fallen on his school and all the boys are cheering <laughs> and he's going to have another extended summer holiday. Tell me about your mum and dad, John, and where you grew up. Well, my mother was a great survivor, one wonderful woman. She'd been in both world wars. She was, she was a child in the First World War, and um, she was the eldest of, of four daughters. And uh, she was always very competent. And so during the war, she grew all the vegetables and she, she worked for the war effort. And it was, it was a time of, of great courage that people had. And my mother was courageous. And my father joined up immediately and he spent quite a bit of the, the war somewhere up north working on some project or other to the, for, the, for the war effort. When you were young, John, you lived near the Shepperton Studios. So was that something that really, I suppose, impacted on your young life? Were you immersed in film, really, from a very young age? Yes. As a, as a child, I often saw film units doing shooting scenes on location and um, I suppose I suppose I had influence on me. Um, and we, we, of course, like every child, I went to the Saturday morning matinee for the children. And I remember, remember I'm often asked, what, what's your first memory of the cinema? And it's when I, I went in there and I, and I the, all these kids were screaming and shouting and, and it was... I was appalled <laughs> because I've been to the cinema with my mother and uh, used it something, you know, very often when you went to the cinema, there was a projection on the screen saying air raid and we had to get up and leave. How did you get your break in film, John? How did you get into movies? I know you used to work in the BBC for a while, didn't you? I did, yeah. Well, I, I, I was, my whole career just grew naturally. I was at the BBC and just at the start of BBC Two, and uh, Hugh Weldon was running a BBC, and I did, I was making documentary films and so forth, and he asked me, he said, do something, I want you to do something uh, original for BBC Two, and that's when I did this. This young young series about a young young couple just married, and they're in living in Bristol. And I fo followed them, their lives and their fantasies and their ambitions, and so on. And I followed them through until she finished the film by giving birth, and I was present at birth. So what was original about it was that I 
co-opted as actors of their own life. Mm. So that we're creating this thing together. So that was my contribution. And was it from that documentary, John, that you really got your break into movies? Well, yes. When I, you see, I started making films for the BBC, several of them, and I started getting offers to, to make movies. Wow. So it, that's how it happened. And uh, so I just moved on. Well, in 1977, of course, you made the award-winning film The General John, the superb true crime drama about Dublin gangster Martin Cahill. And the man who played Martin Cahill was, of course, the great Brendan Gleeson, who's on the line now. Brendan Gleeson, thanks so much for joining us. And we've got John here on the line as well, Brendan. Great. That's great, Miriam. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's an odd time, isn't it? Absolutely, that he's leaving the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's, are you, Brendan? Um, are you... Home. Hiya, John. How are you? <laughs> very good to hear your voice. Yeah, and you, as always. No, I just, I just wanted to uh, pay tribute to um, what you've done for myself as a person and as an actor, and to the country as a, as a, an artist over the last fifty years. It's been extraordinary what you've uh, given to the country and to the film industry, and to me as a person and as an actor. Um, just the wisdom and the the heart and soul that you've um, conveyed, and, and and it's been such an education for people here. Like the, the entire film industry really owes you a debt, uh, but also just the pieces of art that you have left behind that were made here um, that will always always live. Um, it has certainly made a massive difference to to my life, as you know. So I just wanted to pay tribute to you and say bon voyage. Um, we're going to miss you terribly, but hopefully maybe I might get to see you in, sorry, before too long. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Brendan that means a lot. And Brendan, can I ask you then about, I suppose, how important was it for you, Brendan, do you think in your career, to work with John on The General? Uh, it, was, it was transformative in the sense that uh, you know, the amount I learned on that set stayed is still with me. Um, it was the, the difference between somebody who was doing his best at it and then somebody who understood what was required in terms of digging deep into your own um, psyche and your own um, personality and your own sort of soul somewhere. Um, I remember having a chat with John and I, I did a camera test with him and he said, yeah, that was a very good impression, but uh, you're going to have to go deeper than that. And after that, uh, um, it was when I started getting nightmares at night that I realised that I was starting to delve somewhere that, that hurt and that was required. And on set then, uh, there was a particular incident that always um, struck me. We were, I was waiting outside uh, casing a joint or whatever the, the expression is, um, and I felt very exposed because this was a character who kept his face hidden. And um, John brought me around to the back. Monitors had just come in to where you could see mm. um, the relay from the camera. And there was a jagged edge of a shadow that went across the window of the car that I was looking through um, that masked my face apart from the eye looking out to it. So even though my hand wasn't covering my face, the camera uh, had been set up by Seamus Deasy with John's direction, whereby I was actually looking through a shadow, literally. Mm -hmm. And so the narrative in the camera 
um, I began to understand it in a way that was extraordinarily sort of uh, revealing to me. And the, 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 the relationship between the actor and the camera in, in telling the story and how the actor doesn't need to do it if the camera is doing it for him. And John tended to work with one camera, so there was always a very, very strong uh, narrative point of view in the camera. And so all of these things just were, it was a total education um, and it was thrilling because it was collaborative and mentoring and informative and was, ex was extraordinarily fearless as well in the way that he would go for things in one shot and trust his actors to do it. Um, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. We finished up on top of a mountain in, in Wicklow and nobody wanted to come down. <laughs> <laughs> So he, he gave of himself in a way that was absolutely extraordinary. And there's always been such love and soul in his work. I just think he's, he's an absolutely remarkable man and has made a massive difference to my life in every way that I can think of. Let's hear a clip now from the general. Listen to me, Martin. You're in a deep, deep hole. I'm going to put you away. I'm going to stitch you up for your own good. Kenny's going to frame me. He's going to put something. Listen. He's going to plant something on Listen me. Listen to me. Kenny, Listen to me. Kenny, the sitter. Kenny, the sitter. Madam. Listen to me. Can't you sense it, Madam? It's all around. Can't you feel it? There's a bullet coming. Kenny's a murderer. He's going to shoot. Get me out. He's going to shoot. Listen. Why can't you just listen? Listen. 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 Oh, please, please, please. Anymore. Please, don't. Oh, Jesus. Oh, don't hit me. See, your problem is that you were doing stuff to me that would bother you. But I'm not like you. Water off a duck's back. <coughs> but I'll tell you what, you're getting to be like me. Trespass, harassment, intimidation, beating people up. You've had to come down to my level. That's a clip, of course, from The General. And just so you know, John, Brendan, you're on a set. You made a big effort to phone in today because you do love John so much. Did you learn an awful lot from him, Brendan? Was it like working with the master as a guy to film acting or something when you work with someone like John Borman? Ah, uh, yeah. No, no. I mean, there was a few. I had gone full time for a few years, but I was still tinkering around with film. I, I, it was something that I was learning. I had to... Uh, you know, look at myself on screen, basically, to see what what lies were being told uh, from what I thought I was doing to what I was actually doing, or what was transferring onto screen. But the difference it was the creative end of things. It was how how to achieve things filmically, um, and just the possibilities within that kind of particular art medium. Um, John completely opened the door for me in that regard. It was it was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, so. No, I, 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 it went beyond learning. It was also a kind of an invitation to explore further too. 
and we went on to make a few few films after that in collaboration um, and it was always thrilling and fun and exciting to be on the set with them um, always or even talking about the project or you know being given access to the editing room and understanding how that process has to be nurtured and how, how creative that can be. So, yeah, it was really, um, it was totally informative and he was, he is absolutely the master. <laughs> the truth is and, that Brendan was, a, Brendan was absolutely highly intelligent and, and absolutely learned all the, the tricks in a few moments. And I, I just pointed him in, jet, in the direction I wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was a bit of a sponge, all right. I couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> but um, no, it was, it was, it's that unique com uh, combination of wisdom and sensitivity. And I remember, John, you telling me that in order to maintain your independence, you had to produce a lot of your own stuff which meant that you had to have a thick enough skin to actually produce the thing and make it happen, but make sure that your sensitivity wasn't so walled off in the process that your, your artistic uh, sensibility was left intact. And that then you yeah. would go into the editing process and say, what idiot directed this? <laughs> <laughs> so that you had to be a number of different people all at once. It wasn't just that you were a magnificent writer and director and you also produced and kept your independence of voice. And it was the bravery of that and the commitment to it, um, even at, you know, high stress cost to yourself. And you could have so easily made studio film after studio film. And it's not the way you went to go. You had an independent voice and you wanted it to be there and an independent vision. And your legacy is magnificent. It really is. It's absolutely magnificent. And just, it's, it's a truly a massive artistic achievement. So more power, more power to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Brendan, okay. that's uh, very kind. It, you know, when you're shooting a film and, and preparing it for each shot, and there's a lot of noise and people are calling and shouting and, and there's noise and everything, and, and it can get to you. But Lee Marvin said to me when we were making the film together and there was that all that pat noise was going on in, in the set and, and he yeah. said, but remember, John, he said, when that camera's running, it's just you and me. But there and you I've go. always Absolutely. remembered that. Uh, John, listen, bon voyage again, and it's been such a thrill. And as I say, I'm looking forward to seeing you over, over in Surrey. So I, I, they're, literally, they're calling at me here. I'll, I'll have to go. But, um, yeah, as I said to you before, Animo will always be with you, and you'll always be with Animo. So uh, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, stay well. Sorry. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Brandon. Bye bye. Thanks, Brandon. John, that must, I mean, I think listening to Brandon there, you can see how important you were as a director in the development of his career as an actor. Is that something that's very rewarding as a film director? Well, I think this uh, film director has many casts and tasks. And uh, so, but the, the, the fundamental one, is the relationship with the actors. And I always stand very close to them and make sure everything is all right. And they know that I'm there and it, 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 it helps them. And uh, that's, that's my method. I just making the actor give him confidence. And um, of course, when people say to you, are you making a film? They usually mean, 
Are you shooting a film? The, the shooting part of a film is probably only eight weeks, but to make a film takes at least a year if you're doing it properly. So you prepare. I always say that preparation is cheap, that shooting is expensive. So we do plenty mm. of cheap preparation so that when we, when we go into make, making the film, every, everything has been solved. That's how I made a career <laughs> of shooting pictures and bringing them in on budget. And I never had to do a reshoot. The, the plan was always there. And uh, some of them weren't so good, but some of them were. We're just about to take a break, John, but we were talking about the general there just very briefly. I have to ask you, isn't it true that you were actually visited by Martin Cahill himself on one occasion at your home in Animo? Is that correct? Yeah, he burgled my house. And uh, amongst other things, he took the gold discs that I'd be given because, uh, you know, when you uh, get to a certain level, they make a little gold, they spray it with gold and frame it, you know. So I had several of those and he took them <laughs> thinking they were made of gold. <laughs> and I, I put that into the film itself and showed his disappointment that they were just a ordinary records spray with gold paint. <laughs> Serves them right. Listen, John Borman, stay with us and right after the break we're another good friend of yours who's going to join us. That's Paul McGuinness. We'll take a break. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Welcome back. I'm here this morning with renowned film director John Borman. John, we're going to be joined now by another good friend of yours, a neighbour where you've lived in Animo and County Wicklow for over 50 years. Good morning, Paul McGuinness. Uh, good morning, Miriam. How are you? So good. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to your neighbour there, Paul. Hi, John. Hello, How are Paul. you? Hello, Paul. I'm, I'm just, nice. a, I'm nice just about where a mile away from you. Where are you? I'm in Animo. We came back You're from... You're back, uh, back, are you? We, right. we came back from because New you've York. you've been away and I, I've certainly missed you. Early so, this morning, <laughs> and my, I slept on the flight, but my voice may be a little bit hoarse. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. And, you know, I'm very sad that you're leaving Animo, and Kathy and I will miss you enormously, but we'll, I'm sure we'll find a way of seeing you in England. But um, it's been many years of... Um, We've it been neighbours for a long time. Wait for me on a, as, a, as a assistant director on Zardoz? Yes. Well, I, it was my first job. In 1973, I was hired as a production assistant, location manager, assistant director type on Zardoz. And I was uh, so excited to get this gig that, somewhat to the dismay of my parents, I stopped studying at Trinity College <laughs> and, and went off and joined the circus, effectively. Um, <laughs> and even though I promised my mother I would go back and finish the degree, I'm afraid I never did. The experience kept, of working kept, on... You kept working. You kept working. And you were a very 
intelligent assistant and did a lot of good work for me. It was was great fun. I mean, Zardoz was an exceptional film in that respect, that it had all the things that make filmmaking exciting. It had guns, it had strange costumes, it had special effects, it had explosions and... The, the, the yes, drama the, of the, filmmaking. The full uh, armory of the cinema. Yes. It also had, this was pre-CGI, it had really sophisticated matte photography, and it had one of the world's greatest cameramen, Jeffrey Unsworth. And I was fascinated by every single thing that was going on in the in the production of the film. And I worked on it for many, many months during pre-production and during the shoot. And it was a glorious summer in Wicklow that year. And sometimes I'd, I'd drive past parts of Wicklow where we filmed Zardoz. And I will never forget what we did in 1973 on that spot. And then you soon became my neighbor, next-door neighbor. Well, that was another thing. Um, you moved to Wicklow, and you've been a, a generous neighbour ever since then. And uh, it's been a, a wonderful time we've had together. Well, we moved here, Kathy and I moved here in about 1991, and our children really were quite young at that point, and they grew up here. And we've been here ever since. And Kathy found the house, and a bit like John finding his wonderful house in Animo the Glebe, I, you know, I fell in love with this house, and I've been here ever since. Apart from many trips touring the world with you too, but this was always our family home, and I had that experience again. First thing this morning, coming off the flight from New York, driving into Animo and just thinking how beautiful it is. Wicklow really is. Um, when lockdown occurred, um, frankly, there are worse places to have been than in Wicklow. And John's, I don't know if you've, you've mentioned this earlier in the program, but John's planting of large acreage of um, native Irish trees is one of his lasting legacies. Mm. And as this lockdown started and we, the, the world seemed to get smaller, what I was doing, which was making a TV drama series in France called Riviera, that came to an end and we we learned, or Kathy, my wife, who's a book publisher, her, her company, Lilliput, encouraged John to... John had started a diary. Um, his knowledge of and love of trees is, is quite remarkable. And Kathy encouraged him to continue the diary, and it was eventually published and it's for for anyone who loves Wicklow and loves trees it's a a beautiful small book 
and I would earnestly recommend it. Well, thank you, Paul. It, yes, I enjoyed making that. Well, that it's book. very good. And Kathy, Kathy, Kathy was insisted I did it. Really, <laughs> <laughs> every morning I went out. Every morning for three months, I went out early in the morning and looked at what was happening to the natural world and come back and write it up and for, for April, May and June of that year. And uh, it, it was, it, I, I would not have written it but for, but for Kathy. Kathy insisted on it. <laughs> well, that's and good. And as you know, Kathy, when Kathy insists on something, you, you have to do it. Oh, don't I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and John, of course, Paul was working there with you in Zardas as a young man before he ever managed you two. Do you think he made the right decision to give up the film business or not? Well, he one day came up um, and played me some of the U2 music. Perhaps I'd do a pop video, you know. With, I'm, he played me the music, their music, and I... I it didn't appeal to me at all, <laughs> so I declined. <laughs> I, learned yeah. to, I learned to like it better. <laughs> and I, yeah, saw, yeah. I saw you two in uh, L.A. Do you remember? Oh, yes, indeed, I do. Um, yeah, and, um, and, you... and uh, I, I go to love them, <laughs> like everybody else. Paul, thanks so much for chatting to us this morning. As John departs these shores soon, how great a loss do you think he will be to this country? Many have said he single-handedly, you know, created a film industry here. Well, in the 70s, there was no government support for filmmaking and Ardmore Studios, of which I actually subsequently became one of the owners, was regularly going bust, and there were very limited supports given to filmmakers, and there was quite a controversial period when John was the chairman, I think, of the Irish Film Board, and that year he decided to divert their entire budget into a film being made by Neil Jordan, and there was a lot of bitching and moaning about that, but it was clearly absolutely the right thing to do, as Neil's career ever since has has demonstrated. Mm. And and he has had that role in, in Neil's life and in many other filmmakers' life. He's a great mentor. And I'm sure he... I, I wonder whether he said says the same thing to all of them as he said to me when I went to work on Zardoz. I had a short interview with John and he said, I just want to tell you three things. Remember this. What we're doing here is turning money into light and then we turn light back into money and if we have more money than we started out with, we can do it again. He said, then the second thing is, he said, I'm sure we're not paying you very much money, which I can confirm. He said, but it's a good discipline to try and save your own wages. And then the third thing was, he said, put the money on the screen 
He said, if you have the choice about getting, you know, a limousine or a driver for an actor or somebody, if it's a choice between that and getting 10 more extras for a certain scene, get the extras because we'll see them on the screen, but we'll never see the limousine. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was really wise and I've never forgotten it. Well, Paul McGuinness, thank you so much for taking the time to thank speak you, to Paul. us this morning. Very kind of you. I'll see you soon, I hope. Paul, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. John, obviously, Paul there is one of your neighbours, but I was lucky enough a couple of years back to go down to Lugalaw to another neighbour of yours, Garrick de Brune. And Paddy Maloney, of course, from the Chieftains was there, who was another great friend of yours. You had great kind yes. of gatherings and parties down, both in your house in the Glebe, didn't you, and in Lugalaw? Yes, we indeed. Great, great times. Um, Lugalaw has, has been a special place in my life. I used to go down and swim in the lake. And also Gareth, although he'd never been to school, or at least he went to school for four days, but didn't like it and went home <laughs> and uh, never did any for any formal education. And yet was incredibly wise and so well read. He was an extraordinary man. And I, I, I must have spent a year of my life waiting for him. He was always late. <laughs> well, on that, John, so, I know you loved Paddy Maloney and the Chieftains and you loved the song, yeah. The Star of the County Downs. We're going to take a little break and listen now to Paddy, the Chieftains and the Star of the County Down. Tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Welcome back. I'm here this morning with the renowned film director, John Borman. He's lived here for over 50 years and is soon, sadly, to leave our shores. John, we've got another person who wants to come on and pay tribute to you. Good morning, James Morrissey. Good morning, Miriam. Listen, I know you were very involved recently. I know you're running Clatter Records. Tell us about that. And you had a little gathering for John last week. Uh, we did. Garrett Brown, as you know, passed away in, in 2018. And I know that certainly uh, it would have been a wish of his to ensure that John got recognised uh, for his enormous work and for and, and for his friendship to, to him, to Garrett and, and to uh, Cladder Records. And I, I think really what John Borman did is he, he inspired those who worked with him, but he also acted as a motivator for those who had seen his films, young people with talent and with creative skills that deserved to be, to be mined and to be explored. And I think this is John's real legacy, much more than the many, the many awards and the many accolades uh, that adorn his, his, his shelves. And of course, isn't it right, James, as people like John and Garrick de Brune and John Hurt and Paddy Maloney, those, all those people, they're very much part of, I suppose, this little cultural enclave in that part of Wicklow. Yes, it, it, it yes, almost sir. reminds me of 
Echo in the Canyon, a, a, a film that was made a few years ago about a particular part of, of um, California where the eagles and the birds and all the, 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 the pop and rock musicians emerge. And when you, when you look at that area, it was very fertile with creativity. John, John Hurt, Seamus Heaney lived there for a while. John Montague came and left from, from uh, Lugalaw. Paddy Maloney had a house in, in Animo. The great photographer Walter Pfeiffer, Paul McGuinness, uh, and Bono was a regular visitor to, to, to Lugalaw. And it's, it's, it was that confluence of minds, of ideas, of creativity, now not always undertaken in a very serious way. Uh, these gatherings could have taken place over days, or weekends, and they might range from going to the Roundwood Inn up to Lugalaw. Uh, it was a bit like Hotel California. You could check out, but you could never leave. <laughs> and James, before I let you go, I think, is it right that you say, like, John Borman's greatest legacy and the one I suppose that will keep on giving is how he inspired so many young people here to become involved in aspects of filmmaking? Well, I think if somebody were to carry out a study on the Irish film industry when John arrived here to live in Wicklow some 50 years ago and compared the Ireland's involvement in the industry then with Ireland's role in the global film industry today and all the attendant parts and all the spin-offs, no comparison. And, and it is down to people like like. like 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 John and 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 many others and when I I watched, I went to see Banshee's Vinishiran last night and I couldn't stop thinking John Borman's legacy is what I'm looking at right now. John, would you like to say something there? Yes, there were a lot of my actors in it and uh, and the director I've I've spoken to and talked with many times and he's very talented and he has a great sense of humour and I. Always enjoys films. James, before I let you go, will you tell us the story about, obviously there was a great friendship between Gareth Brown and John here, but that Gareth was often late in the time about he invited him to dinner. Yes, and John would have frequently been invited to to look at for dinner, but almost as infrequently as he would be invited, uh, Gareth would forget that he had invited John to dinner that evening. But he'd also forget to tell the chef and he'd also forget to tell himself. And so Gareth would be down in, round, in the Roundwood Inn regaling acquaintances with stories, returning to Lugalaw. And, I, and John Boorman would be sitting there, no table set, no food in the oven. And he would look sternly at Gareth. And Gareth would just apologise and Gareth would say, maybe it's a bit too late. Maybe we should just have a drink. <laughs> Do you remember yeah. that, that, John? Yes, of course. And Gareth... But he's very unreliable, Gareth. He was, he was a delightful person, really. Fundamentally, a kind of a lost soul. And I befriended him, and I got him out of a lot of scrapes. <laughs> and uh, you went, whenever you went down to Lugalore, at whatever the time of the day or night, you were offered a, you know, a glass of champagne. <laughs> and, and he kept, the, kept that up all through his life of there. It was a very unusual person. Beneath it all, the drinking and the carousing, he was very wise and an extraordinary man. 
Well, it was a great privilege to know him. And uh, like a law, was a great center of uh, art and artists. And uh, you, you, we had the most wonderful times that down there. Well, James Morrissey, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And thank you, James. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, John. John, since Paul mentioned trees there, I know you genuinely have an incredible love for trees, don't you? You've planted so many in your garden. You're going to leave all those now. Yes. Well, I, I planted from the day I first arrived in the and in, 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 I planted trees right away. Because the time to plant a tree is, is yesterday, you know. And uh, you can't plant them early enough because... They take a few years to grow, and if you're going to see them in their pomp, you better start right away. My, that's my my advice to, to people who grow trees: is plant them yesterday. Anyway, apart from all individual trees, um, specimen trees, I have planted a, a, a woodland, which is is about a 200,000 trees, all Irish uh, indigenous trees, and they, they join up and make woodland. And I won't be alive to see it, but uh, it's now uh, what I describe as an adolescent. I planted it 35 years ago. So it's, I, it's now what I describe as an adolescent woodland. It's rather beautiful now, but it's going it's to be great really great in about 30 years' time. But John, that's an incredible legacy. Even if you'd never directed a film in your life, <laughs> those trees are an incredible legacy. Yes, I, 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 I think they're much more important than anything I've ever done with a film. I was um, privileged before to talk to you about a special tree planted in memory of your beautiful daughter, Telsha. It's a Himalayan larch. Isn't that correct? Because for anyone, yes, Himalayan arch, yes. For yes, anyone who do, for anyone who doesn't it's, know, John, your beautiful daughter died at thirty-six from cancer. So that tree will stay there in animo yes. in her memory forever. Yeah, it's a lovely tree. It's got silver bark, and it's 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 uh, now well. She died 35 years ago, so it's growing in her, in her place. I read something you said recently, John, about so many of your close friends and people both you worked with and people close to you you loved have gone to heaven or they are no longer in this world. Does that make the world a lonelier place for you? Yeah, yes, it does. I mean, John Montague, the poet, was a great friend, and uh, I sadly missed. Um, and as they all die off, I found myself alone so often. Um, my my friend Rob Sharpoff was, was a, 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 the producer was a great friend. And they, and as as they uh, get picked off, um, I find myself 
um, alone very often. But I have my my lovely daughters to um, take their place. Do you think we go anywhere, John? Like, do you believe in heaven? Well, I don't. I think, you know, I believe in nature and in nature, trees, everything dies away. My belief is that uh, when we die, we, 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 we're gone. And I don't know, I can't see any evidence of an afterlife. Does that concern you? As, as, Shakespeare, as Shakespeare put it, that born from which no traveller returns. Mm. So we have what we've got here. Are you frightened of death? Do you think about it? I often long for it. I'm, oh. in, I'm 90. I often lie long, <laughs> for goodness sake, I've been here half long enough, put me away quietly. And, and I must say, staying alive has been a very pleasant to talk to you. Oh, John. When you look back on your life as we close this interview, do you feel you've been lucky in your life? Do you feel happy with what you've achieved in your life? Do you reflect back on your life? Yeah, I think I've been very lucky uh, because when when I came out of my two years of national service, uh, I had to go in at 18, I came out at 19 and commercial television just hadn't started, but it was getting geared up for it. So I got a job there right away and um, I was promoted <laughs> continuously and and that was my how my career began and I was so uh, lucky to be at that time at that particular time yes and as I said at the very beginning you're known for extraordinary films like Hope and Glory Deliverance Excalibur do you have a favourite film or is it that like saying you have a favourite child you cannot say that well, my favourite film, I think, I mean, I'm not, I don't say necessarily it was not my best film, but my, my, lo my love for it is, my, is Hope and Glory because it's the story of my family and, um, and that's a story of childhood. And it was uh, made with great love and by a lot of people. And a lot of my family are in it including Charlie uh, plays a German airman who parachutes into this. <laughs> I'm most fond of that film. Let's hear a clip now from that movie, Hope and Glory. surface is British. Don't know, miss. Anyone? 
Jennifer Baker. Two-fifths, miss. Yes, two-fifths. Ours. That's what this war is all about. Men are fighting and dying to save all the pink bits for you ungrateful little twerps. Page 17, the British Empire. Box away, scramble! That was a clip from that movie, Hope and Glory. Well, John Borman, can I just wish you every happiness and great health for the future. Thank you, as our guest said today, for being such a wonderful friend to Ireland over the past 50 years and more. And I know you're heading to your son, Charlie, in Surrey, and I hope your many, many more decades in Surrey will be as happy as they have been for you here. (laughs) Thank you. Mind yourself, John. Thank you so much. And that's it for us. For today, the programme was produced by the series producer Cora Ennis. Elaine Conlon was our broadcast coordinator. Ruth Kennington was on sound. Stay listening for Brendan. Thanks so much for listening. Sloan. Sunday with Miriam. Listen back on the RTE radio player.